This is the Game Changers podcast where your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And predominant educational thought leader, Adriana De Prado. Well, the Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of the 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't want or wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are going to be their stories. Uh, Phil, lovely to see you again. It's lovely uh, lovely to be here with you and your loud shirt, Adriana. (laughs) I'm glad our listeners can't see that. Uh, Now, what I'm really excited about is that we have uh, a true global thought leader with us today, and that is Valerie Hannon. Someone who's inspired systems to rethink about what success will mean in the 21st century for, for a long period of time now. And of course, the implications of what success looks like for education. Uh, Valerie is the co-founder of both the Innovation Unit and of the Global Education Leaders Partnership. And she's been a radical voice of change whilst grounded in deep understanding of how education systems currently work. Uh, Valerie is also a senior advisor to the OECD for its uh, Education 2030 project. And we're very fortunate, actually, Valerie's in Australia at the moment because she's here for the Australian lecture, uh, learning lecture series on the subject of the future of school, which is quite kind of apt because that's what a lot of our Game Changer conversations have been It's about. kind of appropriate, isn't it? So, Valerie, welcome and welcome to uh, the Game Changers podcast. And we're going to launch straight into it. Can you share with us a little bit about what your story has been uh, and, and how you've gotten to where you are today? Hi, and um, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to join you and to be part of this. I think what you're doing is important and useful. Uh, my own story is, is kind of a dull one in a way. I, 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 I have to say, like many people in education, I drifted into it. And so I was not motivated by high ideals of changing the world or serving young people. Actually, I had rather a lack of imagination. <laughs> and uh, I was at a convent school, which was very, um, let, let, let's say they were not very well versed in what one's options might be in the wider world. So I studied philosophy and maths. I thought, what the hell am I gonna do with myself? And I drifted into teaching. And um, that, that changed me quite a lot, dealing with young people um, in a very deprived part of North London. Uh, and I became interested in, in theory around learning. So I moved from thinking about schooling to thinking about learning. And uh, the rest is kind of a zigzaggy career, which was never planned and never intentional. So I didn't have, aha, this is my goal. I will now do such and such. I just had great opportunities arising. I studied with some great people. Some of your listeners may know David Hargreaves, um, a very important education intellectual who I worked on my master's with. I went from there into what you in Australia called the the bureaucracy, um, but it was education management. We won't hold that against you, Valerie. No, I'm going to try and persuade wherever I go now, I'm trying to persuade the bureaucrats to throw off their shackles and, and stop being described by that pejorative term and and stop behaving that way too. I think they need to be creative public servants and public leaders, but that's another story. Um, Anyway, so I've done that job. I've been a researcher in university. I've been a civil servant. I worked in for the Equal Opportunities Commission. I became very interested in gender um, and gender inequalities, particularly in education. 
Yes. And I uh, then became, I, I worked with Ken Robinson on the creativity review. Um, so I was part of the committee which drafted that reasonably influential report. And that changed me because I spent a year thinking about creativity, writing about it, contributing to the report. And I ended up being the advisor to ministers around how we implement creativity in schools completely unsuccessfully, as you will have noted, as far as the UK system is concerned. Mm -hmm. But it did change me. And um, I got invited to be part of an innovation unit within government, which we rapidly realized was a, a, a lousy place for it to be. And we floated it off as a not-for-profit, um, independent uh, organization, which was innovation unit. And there's now an innovation unit, I'm very proud to say, in Australia too. So that's really when I became independent and started writing and speaking and trying to contribute to um, a much more radical change that I think is possible sometimes if, you, if you're working in the kinds of jobs I've just described. Yeah, Valerie, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear that you, you, you're a philosophy graduate. Our, our producer, Samuel Wiseman, is also a philosophy graduate um, and, we, and we love them dearly. Um, and, and, and of course, you're talking to a history teacher and an art teacher. So it, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the beginning of a joke, a history teacher, an art teacher and a math teacher walk, into, walk, into, a, a walk into a bar. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm really interested and I think our, our listeners would be interested in your take on what is the purpose of schooling in today's world? Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate the question because I know what you're keen to do with your listeners is to get to digging into the issues of how. And I absolutely support that. And there's an awful lot of rhetoric around and, you know, people might get a bit fed up with talking about why. But you know what? I, I actually want to persuade people that they have to start there because yeah. unless you really get a firm handle on what schooling and what more importantly learning is for, um, then you're on, you're, on, you're on rocky ground because people will constantly revert to an old paradigm, an old narrative, an old story about what education is for, which goes very deep. And, and why wouldn't it, you know, that the institution has been around a couple of hundred years and everybody goes through it. It's very interesting. It's the only institution which government mandatorily puts people through. You've got no choice. And, and, they're, and they're very much hardwired to it. Absolutely, they are. So that story runs deep and we have to change that narrative. And unless you change the narrative, you will not get into the difficult business of implementing the how. There's now all across the world lots of examples of how, and I'm confident that we can shine spotlights on them and, and, and show that it's doable. But we've got to persuade people that the enterprise is worth it. So my take on all of this is that, frankly, we have endured a system where politicians in particular only talk about education in terms of funding, in terms of sifting and sorting to get into universities, and an expectation that it will all lead to better jobs. Um, all of these things are now less than credible. We can't carry on just expecting that we will continue to you know, have increased consumer growth, larger GDP um, in a, on a planet which has actually got limited resources, not illimitable ones. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, really, what are, what are people looking to learning to do for us as, as a species, not just as individuals? So my conclusion to all of that, to short circuit my last book, which was called Thrive, is that we have to think about learning as being le learning to thrive 
in a transforming world. Learning to thrive in a transforming world. And that's got two bits to it. What does it mean to thrive? You know, what, what we really mean by success in today's conditions. And is it really a transforming world? You're a history teacher. So you might say to me, it's always been changed. Grow up, you know, get right. It's a, if you were a Tudor or a Victorian, um, you'd be saying, wow, what a lot of change. This is tough. But my argument is that our species is facing change as never before. And I think I've got a fair amount of evidence to show that it is completely unlike any other era. So it's the history teacher. Yeah. yeah. So it's the history teacher here. I, I'm I'm interested in 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 your take on the nature of the change. The research we've done suggests there's something around the volume, pace, and intensity of change. So it's not just that there's change. There's a lot of it that seems to overwhelm folk. I think the second thing that I, I, I would I would speak to is that within schools themselves, we might talk about thriving students and, and trying to get students to thrive. I don't see many schools where the teachers themselves think that they're thriving. I think, I think most of my colleagues and our colleagues uh, feel as though they're just drowning right now. Um, and a lot of it is to do with technology, the interface between the, tech, uh, the technological and the human um, a lot of it's just got to do with a lot of stuff that either they didn't imagine they were going to get themselves into when they started teaching or they might have anticipated it, but it's just really hard stuff to do. So what, what, what do you make of the change? That, that... Okay, so let me take you two points in turn. I, I agree with both of them, but maybe the second one I'll put a bit of a nuance on. The first one, you say change, volume, pace, intensity. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, uh, given all of that, you know, people will say, oh, it's a VUCA world. Um, it, it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, it's ambiguous. And that's fine, it trips off the tongue, but it's a fat lot of use, really, in terms of what you do with that insight. Absolutely. What I try to do in my book is to assemble the evidence, the, the scholarship, actually, around trend data about what we, are, we see coming down the line in the next 30, 40 years. And I've grouped it under three, what I'm calling pivot points, um, three points of inflection in human history. The first is around our planet. And our planet, I think, has got three strands of shift, which are taking us into both existential threat and um, a point where there, there could be a tipping point and we know not what lies after that. The first is the fact of um, the sixth grade extinction the intense reduction of biodiversity, about 200 species a day, around about 50% of all mammals gone by the end of the century. The second strand of that is around the entry into the Anthropocene age, the new geological era, where we are fundamentally mm -hmm. shifting the structure of our planet. Yeah. And the third strand of it, of course, is the climate crisis. In this continent, I need to say nothing about that. Now, those three are combining together to give us potentially an unlivable planet, and if that's the case, we're toast. Therefore, therefore, young people, we all have to become agents of change to deflect those trajectories. And it's never been seen in human history before. That's inflection point one. Inflection point two is around technology, which is actually where people usually start, and I don't think they should. But you're right, volume, pace, intensity. And I, in my book, suggest that there are three strands to this. The first is job disruption by, dis by uh, robotics. 
um, young people in schools today do not face the same kind of labour markets as they might have done in the past. And um, we are looking at what some writers call a post-work society. That doesn't mean say there'll be no work at all, but work will be differently distributed, there'll be less of it, and we'll be seeing underemployment or mass uh, and or much greater unemployment. Question becomes, therefore, what are we preparing young people for? I want to explore that a little bit now. Can I come back to it? Because I do just want to finish my three pivots of, of, of change, otherwise the thing becomes incoherent. Um, within the technology inflection point, there is two, of course, um, artificial intelligence and everything that implies as it, as it penetrates every aspect of our lives. In the context of global connectivity, a world where some writers call it big mind, you know, we will soon have all of our minds directly connected to the internet. So you can forget any notion that a school is about the transmission of knowledge. So that's second inflection point around technology. And my third, um, Adriano, just before I let you come back at no, me, no it's this, the, very, the very future of our species. Yeah. Our own evolution is actually moving into our own hands because the, the elements of this are firstly the plummeting cost and practicality of genetic engineering, the capacity to actually um, select traits and what that implies, human enhancement technologies, and the incorporation of many forms of technologies into our own body. So for the first time in history, this is why I want to say there's never been, there's never been a set of changes as transformational as now for our spaces. We can say that actually we're not just subject to natural selection, but actually we are taking a hand in our own evolution. What are humans to become? What are we? Yeah. So there you have it. There are three, in my view, points of inflection and that level of change is transformative. It ain't like past eras. So I, I, so thank you very much for sharing that so eloquently because I really want to do touch upon this and explore this a little bit further in the context of now schools. So your book Thrive uh, argues, as you've just articulated, that given the real challenges that we face in the world today, that we're basically now in the age of the human. And it is essential that we ask ourselves what job we want schools to be and what job do we want schools to do? So what, what is learning going to be for now? Yeah. So learning to thrive, the second part of my equation, you know, I've tried to prove in a very brief space of time that we're in a transforming world. If, if we argue that to thrive is our ultimate goal, and here I'm going to come back to what you were asking me a moment ago too around thriving teachers. It's not just about thriving individuals or indeed humans. I argue that we have to see thriving at four levels. The first level is a thriving planet without which we are, we are done for. Yeah. And some people have said to me, you are just arguing the old argument around a more humanist education. Do you know what? I actually am not. I'm arguing for a post-humanist education which, in which we are part of nature and not completely separate and, and it's kind of the lord of all creation you know Valerie can you just tease out a little bit what you mean by post-humanist because that's something that um is of is of great interest to us there might be a few other people out there just scratching their noses at the moment going what do we mean sure. by post-humanist okay. I'll stay with that point whilst I try and keep the thread of coherence going here sure. um it's post-humanist because as I've said this this is not all about an anthropocentric view. It's not all about 
what humans want and need and desire and our, and our quotes, well-being. I hate the language of well-being, by the way. It is much more than that. We have to see ourselves, I repeat, as part of nature altogether. And we are part of an ecosystem which language of us kind of being stewards of nature, again, sets us apart from it as though we are different in kind. We're very clever animals and we've evolved fast and we've got terrific tools and we're busily destroying all the ecosystems that we depend upon. Yeah. So we have to see this much more holistically and that's why my first level of thriving doesn't start with humans, it starts with the planet. How do we enable young people to start to revere their planet, to understand their place in it, to live sustainably and to enable biodiversity to yet again come back onto our, onto our earth because it's, it's, it, that is what makes living sustainable and, and doable on this planet of ours. Unless you entertain an idea where we're all off to Mars, you know, and you, and you build underground um, pods there, fine, you know, great, <laughs> terrific prospect. Doesn't sound particularly human, really. Part of the post-humanist sort of thing uh, talks about tendrils and it talks about the way in which there's reach in there. I, I, if I'm an interested and concerned teacher and I'm listening to this, there's an enormous amount about the outside of the ecosystem. What's the tendril that reaches out to me on Thursday afternoon? It's yeah. three o'clock so, in the afternoon. Yeah, it's windy so, and I'm teaching grade 10. Gotcha, gotcha. Let, let me say this. Um, I started off by saying I don't want to just talk about thriving individuals. Yeah. I see thriving as as a, as a four as it, like think of it as concentric circles. The outer level is a thriving planet, and our learning and our education systems have to be directed towards the overall human task of recreating that, enabling that to thrive. And we're on the wrong course. The second level is thriving societies, and too many societies are disfigured by huge inequity, by sexism, homophobia, a whole range of malfunctioning approaches to living together. And the worst of all, perhaps, is inequity, which is growing across the world. So second level is thriving societies. Third level is thriving interpersonal relationships. How we, how we manage to live together as humans. And there's a great study, the Harvard Development, Adult Development Study, 75 year study of individuals. And the outcome of it was summed up by the director in a kind of a single phrase. Great lives are conditioned by great relationships. Mm. That's how you thrive, by making great relationships. And then finally, the fourth level of thriving is the intrapersonal, me, myself, I. Who am I? Am I comfortable with my own identity? Am I comfortable with my own mental states? Can I, can I be comfortable being alone? Do I have a sense of purpose? I have a sense of calm, I'm not anxious all the time, don't need to be endlessly connected. In a, an era of an epidemic of mental health issues, I think most teachers get that when they're dealing with kids who frequently are, are troubled by anxiety or eating disorders because they have no sense of who they are. So four levels of thriving then, the person, the interpersonal, the society and the planetary. Now, you say to me, what's that mean to me as a teacher of history on a Thursday afternoon? Well, 
it means that when you deal with the overall choices about curriculum and pedagogy in your school, you have to be asking how you create learning experiences for young people, which enable them to start thriving at those levels. And if you're not, maybe you need to ask yourself what you're doing. Now, if you tell me we're all completely constrained by national curricula, I've been in Australia now for two months and I've been in a heap of schools and many are telling me, yes, they're constraining, but you can do one hell of a lot. Western, where I am now, Western Australia, for example, is saying people think they're in a more of a cage than they really are. Yeah. Western Australian curriculum provides an envelope, but you can do a huge amount within that. And I heard about many projects, many approaches, which are directed specifically to enable young people to thrive at those four levels. Now, of course, where we're going to go next is the big roadblock. What's the roadblock? Assessment. What I'm hearing you talk about here uh, today, Valerie, is that you're really agitating for a new paradigm in schools that enable young people to become great agents of social change and to be advocates not only for the stewardship of the environment, but of course of human endeavour and of our species flourishing going forward. I'm also hearing you advocate for, or agitate really in some ways, for a paradigm that understands the inherent value and the exchange between relationships. And that learning is is a social experience uh, and, and that encounter and relationships are important that we amplify that within our schools going forward. Absolutely. And you've nailed it. I, 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 that's a great summary. Um, except just perhaps two, two little addenda to that. One is uh, learning is a social experience, but it is through learning too that we learn to make relationships. You know, some people are great at making and keeping relationships and others aren't. Do you think that's a matter of chance? or just down to the family. I think it's about learning. And I'm seeing schools here in Australia and elsewhere who get that and who are structuring learning experiences where young people actually get to practice making better relationships, more sensitive relationships, more respectful relationships, more loving relationships. Um, And I think that's part of school's mission or should be. And then finally, just down to the person, um, I, I just think that, and I see around the world, schools making sure that they are spaces where young people can find out who they are yeah, and develop their sense of purpose and meaning. So you touched upon earlier the, the pervasive nature of technology in not only the world of work, but in, in pretty much our lives. And that the impact that that's going to have on our need to continue down this kind of one-size-fits-all model of some kind of schools and and this focus simply on knowledge as being the panacea of every element of what goes on in those schools. What would you say, though, to those individuals that, that that would argue that a student can't construct compelling questions and create authentic products if they don't understand the knowledge to begin with? I'd agree with them. This is not an anti-knowledge. <laughs> this is not an anti-knowledge agenda. Are you kidding me? No. Knowledge is hugely important. And part of the problem with the debate over the last few years has been that it's kind of um, become this binary debate, this sterile debate between knowledge and skills, which is stupid. 
The reason I've devoted my time, you mentioned up the, up the front, Adriana, that I've been involved in the OECD 2030 project. Yes. I want to encourage your listeners, if anybody hasn't come across it, to take a look online at that. The reason I've become uh, an advisor to that and worked with it is that it elevates the notion of competency. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that, that, that's music to my ears, Valerie. <laughs> okay. Well, the point about what's good about that is because it's knowledge and skills and yeah. values and attitudes, all four. And character attributes. For in every subject domain, whether that's yours, history, or yours, English, whatever it is, it's math. I've been working with teachers this week about values and attitudes in science, as well as skills and knowledge. But maybe, maybe, maybe all you uh, his, history and English teachers need to learn a few things from us visual arts teachers, because perhaps that's been part of our design thinking construct for as long as I've been in education. Don't, don't encourage him, Valerie. <laughs> don't encourage him. I'm really so. So again, Valerie, it's it's. I'm going to keep bringing it back to the teacher on a Thursday afternoon if I can. Um, when we talk with science teachers all over the world, and we and we and we talk with them about the whole character of a person and the competencies and the values and the attitudes and dispositions and all of those sorts of things, the starting point will be what's that got to do with us? How do I see that? How do we help our colleagues to recognise that what they're doing is educating for the human beings in front of them rather than delivering a set of knowledge how do we help them to understand that? Well, look, I think the truth is a, a hell of a lot of teachers believe that and, and are becoming very proactive in movements now to create great models of this. It's not the kind of lonely um, individual that, you know, I individuals feeling marooned in schools that it used to be. So I, I think what teachers need to do is find their tribe, start to get in, in, in touch with communities of interest and communities of practice either in their own school or elsewhere who are starting to think like them and take a look at some great models i mean the other point is that there are terrific models that you can access very easily through um well books like mine where i give 40 50 60 pathfinder schools and the examples of their practice or online through example um, websites like uh education reimagined there are an, an hundred out of Finland. If anybody hasn't come across the hundred yeah. website. Yeah, it's really. Um, yeah, what it, what it does is, is scan all kinds of examples from across the world in very, very different kinds of systems where teachers and schools are moving towards more personalized, more relevant, more project-based, um, technology enhanced, but not completely conditioned by technology. Um, the, the, the kinds of features that I think we've been touching on here. So I don't, I don't think you need to be feeling that you are completely isolated in this anymore. You, you can find your tribe, you can find people who are on the same journey as you. And so, I have to say to you, a number of sometimes I get contacted by teachers who say to me, I'm in a school where nobody wants to go down this path and the, the, the principal isn't interested. You know, honestly, find a different school. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a strong argument to marching with your feet. I think I think the, the practical realities of 
of finding yourself implanted in a life become quite challenging for many and to lift themselves out of that it becomes you know it's a it's it takes a, a real act of everyday courage to do that I'm, I'm can I just interrupt you and say, you know, I'm not saying get, get out of school immediately. Obviously, with any school that, you know, you, you've got an implanted life, as you say, in a community and you don't want to shift, then there are things I think you can do. Um, I mean, how about setting up a greeting group with, Lee, with, with, with like-minded colleagues and, and starting to look at some texts as part of your professional development and it, it invite the team to think about what this implies for choice of curriculum or structural pedagogy. Absolutely. That, I mean, and that's and and that's a really practical suggestion. Can I can I take the conversation just to a slightly different group within the school, and and that's the middle leaders within a school, or perhaps the senior leaders within a school, who are thinking about all of this sort of stuff, and they really want to be the people who empower the sort of teacher that you're talking about, who gets it and wants to move things forward. They don't want to be the teacher or the the the, the teacher leader who falls victim to the grumpy muppet. You know the the Waldorf and Statler who sit up in the stalls and just snipe, 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 and degrade the tone. There are no principles like that in Australia. Say again. There are no principles like that in Australia. Oh, look, you know, of course not, of course not. They don't want to fall victim to that. So, what is it? What is it that leaders can be doing? Because the very first thing that staff will tell them is, "We do not have the time to do this." Well. You're talking about some groups say one, one, the teacher who finds leadership in unsympathetic, and now you shifted to leadership that finds the teacher body unsympathetic. Not necessarily. I, I, what I, I think I'm talking about school leaders who want to empower those who really want to do it, but then turn around and say, look, we really want to do this. How do we find the time? Well, make the time. What, 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 what do you think time is but a resource that you make choices about? I mean, it's your choice, you know, there is, God doesn't sort of lay a finger on it and say, this must be the timetable. This is how time must be structured. You make choices and plenty of leaders in Australia and across the world are making those choices. This is what leadership is about. And now, it's, you it, have to read your context. And it's, so, it, it, it's, very, it's very exciting to see that in practice. I think, I think um, uh, you're absolutely right to say that there is a growing movement of folk who really want to do stuff and really want to come up with creative solutions. Um, the, the work that you did in the innovation unit in the UK, what were the lessons that you drew from there in particular about how change occurs successfully in organisations? Um, I will say a bit about that, but I also want to point out that you yourselves have now got your own innovation unit here, which is, which is taking some really interesting programmes forward. And in a sense, I guess you ought to be talking to those guys about how um, some of this work is landing with Australian schools and, you know, the obstacles that they're overcoming and how and so forth. So I won't, I won't go there, but they, they are the experts and what the Australian context is throwing up. For us in England, um, it was, it's a much more, it's a much less susceptible uh, environment than it is here in Australia. You might find that difficult to believe, but it is. Um, we have a much more prescriptive national curriculum. We have an inspection agency, Ofsted, which has a very, um, again, prescriptive framework for what counts as good teaching and what counts as good schools. So I think that we've had much less success there. I mean, and, and also, frankly, a set of governments who don't wanna know whose attitude towards education is, is profoundly conservative with a small C. 
uh, and think that was what was pretty good for them is fine for everybody else. And you know, it's all about, I don't want to caricature it, but the, the elevation of knowledge transmission to the, the, the primary function um, is still alive and well in the UK. Well, so and, and, know, and elsewhere too, and elsewhere, including in this country, sadly. Okay, well, I'm sure you, you know better than me, but um, what did we learn? We learned that um, people, uh, I suppose I said it a few minutes ago, it's imperative to get into a community of practice and work with like-minded colleagues on taking incremental steps. It's very, very hard to do this kind of thing as a lone teacher in a school. You get burnt out and you get disappointed. Um, so it's really crucial to find your tribe and work as a team on whatever front it's going to be. It might be the introduction of project-based learning, say, for just one afternoon a week, or even at the smallest of steps, you know, the passion projects. Any of these things get you started on a path where initially learner engagement and then eventually learner agency start to become real experiences within the school. And I'll tell you this, when teachers taste it and experience it and when learners have a go at it, there's no turning back really yeah. I mean, because they just found it so, find it so powerful. Uh, I'm finding this fa this conversation really fascinating, Valerie, from, from not, not only the point of view of the why, uh, you've given us some insights also of, of the how, and particularly uh, the great advice, their sage advice to look at our context and what it means here in Australia, because there are many, many schools and organisations that are thriving and have, and have really adopted a bit of a renaissance in schools and, and a re total reset. And we have to applaud them and we have to acknowledge it. And the, the challenge, though, is that they are probably 14 to 15% of the total school system. Yes, they're the early adopters. And yes, they're, they're, they're led by individuals that are not waiting any longer for permission. And they're going out there and they're simply making change happen based on this rich research and the context that the globe is in that you so eloquently described before. But I want to touch on another group, another important stakeholder in, in our schools, and that's our families and our parents. It's clear that we're all accepting that students, perhaps in, in many schooling contexts, are currently being prepared for a world that kind of no longer exists, as you described earlier, and, and is at risk of entering into a world later on with a set of skills and knowledge that are going to be rendered obsolete throughout adulthood. How can we help their parents and their families better understand this huge paradigm shift? Because I tell you what, the publicist for climate change they got their money worked out for cut out for them right now. I tell you what, they need they need the coronavirus publicists because they seem to be doing a lot better. Um, because because we've got a real challenge. Because in my experience, yes, there are some adults from a teacher context that have shown a reluctance, and that might be out of fear of their own context or whether they're going to be relevant. But by and large, I found a lot of educators and teachers really open to the possibility of the change and really willing. But the real stumbling box has been shifting adults who are taught in a schooling system that they believe serve them well, and that's the way it should be done. Well, Adriana, I get your question completely. And I just think that now the situation is a bit more differentiated than you set out there. Yeah. And I say that because I've been talking in schools, um, running workshops for the last couple of months in Australia with schools who are saying, some of them saying exactly that and others saying, you know, when you get into conversations with parents, they live in the real world. Mm -hmm. They see what's happening to their own industry or to their own families, for example, 
you know, kids coming out of universities with master's degrees and not being able to find high value work, a ton of student debt, and they're flipping burgers and they're asking what it was all for. Yeah. So it's, I think that you have to touch, start off with where people are. And many of the schools that I've been working with are really interested in this notion of, as leaders, starting to create new narratives or, or click into new narratives, new forms of conversation with parents and families. Um, the important, I mean, you know what great leaders do? Great leaders make great stories. They connect the dots. And I think that that's what the leaders of schools need to be doing. I feel it even more so, by the way, around politicians and public leaders. I want to come back to that group in a minute, but just, just to stay with this let us say, stakeholder. I really do think that principals in particular, that senior staff generally, need to be having different kinds of conversations with their parents about what learning is for and, and getting real about that, not just talking university entrance for God's sake, which by the way, at best only applies to 50%. What about the other 50%? Mm. And it's not the be all and end all. It does not guarantee success anymore and certainly won't do in the future if you look at any of the data on job disruption by robots. So, having those conversations which might seem scary um actually i've got a colleague who runs a lot of parental engagement workshops and he finds that you know you get into the conversation and people get it they do yeah you have to open up the conversation and start to construct a different narrative what i really like about what i'm hearing is something that i know i personally have been um really strong on in, in the schools that i have have led and worked alongside colleagues particularly trying to empower uh, members of the executive to to see what our real possibility is, and that is how can we frame the new story around the remarkable story of schooling and learning and young people, and how we're going to reimagine that going forward. And and I fully agree with you. What's also interesting in this conversation for me is you might have found the title of your next book called "Find Your Tribe," because that's pretty clear that yeah, um, find it, find your tribe or live in the real world. I, <laughs> Valerie, it's 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 um it's been um, such a privilege to have a conversation with you today your you, you you combine um a lived experience yeah and great wisdom research passion and you don't mince your words and it's it's just inspiring to listen to you one last question what's the next challenge for you uh well the next challenge is uh around sort of looking at how all this stuff is instantiated in real schools I guess so the reason I'm here in Australia at the moment is to give the Australian learning lecture uh, in a few cities in the coming month unless of course it's cancelled by you know what see uh, coronavirus um, but if it goes ahead then I'll be talking about the future school and I have done um, about six months of preparatory research on that with I think an interesting kind of new take on it around archetypes of new schools which I, I think people might, might find of interest. So my plan is to give those lectures, to get the feedback from people who come, people like Adriano, who I hope will chuck some critical and challenging questions at me. Yes. And when that's over, I'll think again, and then I'm going to turn it into a book. So I've got one, one final question. That was Phil's final question. That was my final question, Adriano. <laughs> so yeah. my, my final question is that I, I'm... I'm an optimist, uh, Valerie, and I need to be because uh, I actually believe in the remarkable story of young people and uh, 
And, and being a visual arts teacher, I, I had the privilege over 25 years now to see young people have those significant aha moments when they have their real breakthroughs in their design and their art that, that has been life-giving for them. So uh, I, I continue to remain optimistic. And for me, my hope is that you know Australia moves away from what you mentioned earlier, this kind of binary thinking, and moves to a place where, where we're more intellectually curious and more collaborative. That's my hope for the future. What's your hope for the future of uh, schooling and education? Well, I've had to share that one. Of course, it's, it's a great one. I just add, um, add a bit of a touch to it, which is that I believe and I hope that young people can be the change makers they need to be yeah. to shape the world, um, not just the external world, but their internal world as well. The, the world, you know, what they, they experience internally. They need to be shaping that. And to do so, they need to be agents of change and to experience a sense of their own possibility and power. Um, and that's what we've all got to work for. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. I was about to plug the um, Australian Learning Lecture Series, but the reality is my understanding is it's sold out and that there are no tickets available for that event in Melbourne next week. But is there any other way that people can continue to learn about your work that you want to share with our audience before we say goodbye? My understanding is it's going to be live streamed. Um, I don't know that they've published the link yet, but I would encourage people to look at the website for the Australian Learning Lecture. And I will ask again if the live stream link could be put up. Please do join us in that way. By the way, it could be the only way you can join if, if <laughs> might the, be. the virus does its thing. But if people are elsewhere, it's, it's going to be on in uh, South Australia, in Adelaide, and it's on in New South Wales as well. Um, so I very much hope that people might join us by one means or another. But as I say, I will turn it into a book, Come Hell or High Water, um, sometime later this year. Thank you very much. Excellent. And at the very least, you all can get out there and read the second edition of Thrive, Schools Reinvented for the Real Challenges We Face, which will be released by Cambridge University Press uh, later this year. Valerie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school, produced by Samuel Wiseman for Audible Productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.